Hello and welcome to Everyday Medicine. I'm Dr. Luke and I'd like to thank you for joining me on this podcast series where we share conversations with colleagues, exploring their special interests in medicine and bringing insights, ideas and advice which I hope will be applicable for our medical practices. In this podcast, we're talking with an expert about climate change and we're going to focus particularly on the health consequences of climate change. So the World Health Organization estimates that between 2030 and 2050, Climate change is expected to cause approximately 250,000 additional deaths per year, including from malnutrition, heat stress and diseases like malaria and infectious diarrhoea. The effect of a planet warming at a measured 0.08 degrees centigrade per decade from 1980 and accelerating to a warming of 0.18 degrees centigrade since 1981 threatens human lives and health in a variety of ways. Well, this statement assumes nothing of the deleterious potential such warming has on other species. Clean air, safe drinking water, nutritious food supply and safe shelter all come under threat in a world experiencing climate change. In this podcast, I didn't wish to focus on the specific science of global warming and subsequent climate change, but rather to direct our attention to the health consequences of climate change. However, a beef background is required. So greenhouse gases are atmospheric gases that allow the shortwave radiation of sunlight to pass through the atmosphere from the sun to the Earth's surface, but make it difficult for heat in the form of long-wave radiation to escape, thus trapping heat within the canopy of the atmosphere, a greenhouse on a global scale. There are over 30 recognised greenhouse gases, including water vapour, carbon dioxide, ozone, methane, nitrous oxide and others. About a third of our global emissions comes from burning fossil fuels, which discharges carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And while CO2 is used avidly by plants and is colourless, odourless and non-toxic, its concentration has been rising by 1.4% annually from 280 parts per million pre-industrial revolution to 379 parts per million in 2005, highlighting an accumulating problem and the rationale for shifting to renewable non-fossil fuel sources of energy. The burning of biomass and use of nitrogen fertilisers are the other main contributors to the increasing concentration of atmospheric greenhouse gases. Despite all the pledges by countries at numerous climate forums, the world's emissions in 2022 reached a new historic peak. On a positive note, Australia's emissions were down by 1.9% in 2021. The US is responsible for the largest share of historical emissions, with China in second place followed by Russia and Brazil. Unmistakably linked to atmospheric emissions and consequent climate change is the world's population, which is growing at a staggering rate, but once predicted to be unsustainable by Thomas Malthus in the 1800s in his essay on the principle of population. Malthus based his treatise on demonstrating an exponential rise in global population matched against a linear rise in food output, while his dire predictions of unsustainability, as history has shown, were incorrect as he did not take into account the development of the internal combustion engine and the modernising of agricultural techniques, another triumph of man's ingenuity. Paul Ehrlich also wrote extensively on the subject of population in his book The Population Bomb, published in 1968, when the world's population was just 3 billion. And Ehrlich predicted worldwide famine as well as major societal upheavals without immediate action to limit population growth. At over 8 billion today, the United Nations predicts peak population by the 2080s to be about 10.4 billion, and the peak baby has already been reached with a now measurable slowing of population growth. Well, these figures no doubt will be borne out in time by history. And suffice it to say that an expanding population, especially an expanding wealthier middle class in many of the world's countries, will likely result in the emission of more greenhouse gases, draw upon vastly more resources and test the limits of humanity's ingenuity in solving a host of ecological problems arising as a direct consequence of the sheer global burden of us all. I was certainly curious to learn more about this topic, and to expand the discussion further, it was a real privilege to invite Professor Richard Eckhart to the podcast. Richard is Professor of Sustainable Agriculture at the University of Melbourne and Director of the Primary Industries Climate Challenges Centre. He's a world authority on sustainable agricultural production, with a focus on carbon-neutral agriculture and agricultural adaptation to climate change. Richard developed the first greenhouse gas accounting tools for agriculture and his research has provided the science basis for six carbon offset methods now in use in Australia. He's a science advisor to the Australian, New Zealand and United Kingdom governments 
International Livestock Research Institute, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations and the European Union, providing advice on climate change, adaptation and mitigation in agriculture. He's also the Australian representative on the Global Research Alliance on Agricultural Greenhouse Gases. So it was a real privilege to invite Richard to the podcast. Please welcome him. So, Professor Richard Eckhart, thank you very much for joining me on Everyday Medicine. I really appreciate you making the time tonight to come and have a chat about the health consequences of climate change, which I think is you know, such an important thing for us all to grasp, um, particularly medical practitioners. Uh, the United Nations um, uh, in their on their website report that between 2030 and 2050, we can expect an extra 250,000 deaths per year from a variety of calamities. Uh, so I, I'm really interested to talk with you about that, to expand that, and just to get your, your insights as an expert uh, at, at, about this whole subject. Uh, so thank you very much, Richard. Just before we launch into things, I always do this to pay for to my guests. Can you give me a little bit of a background, Richard? Uh, I, I can. I know you've got a, an image behind you from the from uh, University of Melbourne where you're lecturing. Just tell us a little bit about where you've come from, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, thanks, Luke. I appreciate the the opportunity. Um, look, I'm I'm from Swaziland, actually uh, originally Eswatini. Now it's called. Um, uh, come from a background of. Uh, my dad was an entomologist dealing with malaria in Africa, and so I had malaria when I was young. I had Bilharzia when I was young, all those tropical diseases, um, but took an interest in, in nature and the, the natural environment. So studied uh, animal science, animal nutrition, then studied a master's degree in soil nutrition, and then studied a PhD in farm systems. Um, what that did is it set me up for the ability to look at polar systems type of issues. And, and, you know, the, the conundrum or the perfect storm that we face of a changing climate with more hostile conditions to produce food, with a rising world population needing more food but less land to deliver the same food, the demand to produce more food more sustainably than we have in the past from less land um, is, is kind of your perfect storm, isn't it? it it's it's, it's the, the challenge of, of the era, really. Um, and so it, it puts me in a, a, a good position to look at global food supply from the developing world, the developed world, um, where we can actually, how are we going to feed the future planet on better, better food in the future? Um, I'd like to hear, you know, you expand this subject, you know, fairly significantly. But I think, you know, talking with friends and considering where this is all headed, it seems to me that it boils down to the provision our, our challenge is, the, is in the provision of food, water, and shelter, and the control of diseases. Yeah, and hopefully we're all saying enough not to kill each other in doing in doing those things. Um, yeah, but there was a there was a gentleman in the 1800s, uh, Thomas Malthus, who who came up with that uh, sort of idea of peak population and. You know, he had this idea that population was exponential and resources were linear. But, of course, that was before the Industrial Revolution and, and engines and industrial machinery, and that changed the whole way we thought about food production. And his predictions, fortunately, have not come to fruition. We're now in a situation where we've got, I think, peak babies was discussed the other day on the radio and on television, and peak population estimated to be around 10.4 billion or so, 2086. It's a lot of people. Uh, before we start seeing maybe peak humanity and then a decline. Um, take us through, you know, your, your sort of thoughts about population and the density, how it's going to affect everything. Yeah, the, the thing with the global population figures, you know, we, we big news, we've just got to 8 billion people on yeah. the planet and um, various estimates would put the peak population. So, so we, we've now reached the point at which the rate of population increase is starting to slow, not the peak. So we still have to increase population to about 11 to 14 billion by 2100 before that's the peak world population, depending on how resources and diseases spread. Um, so if we know that. The, the nefarious part of this all is that we need, right, instead of the doubling of the world population, um, needing double the world food, we need 70% increase in food for a doubling of the world population. And, and that's because we have this rising world middle class running through this population estimates. And the world rising middle class is estimated to add about 4.3 billion people to the planet 
by 2030. So, so, so yeah. that, that introduces the problem because the, the rising middle class actually want more differentiated food. They want higher quality food. Mm. So you can't just double food production and meet their need because it needs a 70% increase or a 50% increase in population because everyone wants to eat like you and I do. And, well, you know, currently that's only about 16% of the world's population that eat like you and I do. Yes. Um, if we double that amount, we can't supply the food required. There, therein lies the real, the real challenge is actually the rising affluence requiring more or demanding more animal-based protein, for example, in their diet as your affluence increases. Yes. The trend is really clear that it's, you know, the countries that are most affluent have a higher proportion of animal-based protein in their diet, and the countries that are lower socioeconomic have less. But we know that the rising middle class demands more differentiated food. And so it, yeah. unfortunately, it means we had to more than double food production. Um, but that's not even across the world. Because we know that, uh, for example, the, the greatest population center in the world will be in Asia, India, the, the Indian subcontinent and, and, and Asia. But the greatest increase in poor world's population will be in Africa. Yes. The rate of increase will be highest in Africa. Yes, in Africa. Yes. And these are all people that can't afford the food that Australia produces, for example. So, so a lot of that... Uh, a lot of those people added to the world's population in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, will be at the subsistence level where they have to be able to manage their own food supply because they can't afford the high-value wheat and dairy products we produce out of Australia. So therein lies the real challenge is local food security in these climate-challenged areas of the world with overpopulation um, versus what, you know, Australia could double its food production. Th think about this. If there's an extra 4.3 billion people added to the world population in the rising middle class, all looking for differentiated food, we used to call ourselves the food bowl of the world. But if Australia produces food for 60 million people worldwide, if we double that, 120 million, we're not the food bowl of anybody. No. We no. not even make 0.1% of the rising middle class of the world. Mm. Um, that all has to be locally produced. Yes. That's a very, very big challenge, isn't it? And uh, I, I mean, perhaps in parts of parts of Europe, I've seen uh, David Attenborough had a program, and I was fascinated to see in Holland the vertical gardens, the vertical tomato growing gardens, and so forth. You know, like a lot of hydroponic sort of uh, growth, but th that requires a lot of organisation, political stability, mm. uh, goodwill, and so forth. So that that's going to be a major problem. Where do you see that all going? Do you think we're going to be able to do that? Uh, yeah, look, it's, it's a fairly big challenge. You know, the, the, there's a lot of good ideas like vertical gardens. But if you, if you just do a simple sum of one farm in the Mallee produces more food than all the cities of Australia and vertical gardens could do combined, um, it, it, there's, a, there's, a, there's a logistical challenge there. Vertical gardens are great for local uh, food supply, but they certainly won't provide the volume of food that the economy needs. Um, it, there's just that, that simple challenge. One, one property, one beef property in Alice Springs produces more beef than all the, you know, all the sort of uh, life properties around the country could produce collectively. Um, so so there's, there's just that little bit of logistics that's missing in the vertical garden idea. But I would point your, your listeners to look up Sundrop Farms in South Australia as, as a sort of vision of the future. Um, Sundrop Farms is in the Spencer Gulf on the driest part of the continent, um, and they it, it's 20% of all Coles tomatoes come from hydroponic delivery in this system. They, it's hydroponic. They don't use the soil because it's all rocky. It's the lowest rainfall. They, they have a solar-concentrated tower in the middle that they point mirrors at and generate 1,100 degrees centigrade at the top of the tower. That, uses, that allows them to desalinate seawater out of the Spencer Gulf and hydroponically irrigate tomatoes in the middle of the desert. That's oh, that really sounds very that sounds very clever. I don't I haven't heard of that. That that's amazing. And you get this great uh, sort of drone vis vision of this big circle of 100 hectares, 50 yeah. of which is mirrors, yeah. the solar thermal, hmm. and another 50 hectares which is under plexiglass which is hydroponic tomatoes. And it gives you a vision of what's possible. No wonder my tomatoes taste so sandy. I, I would argue that the most bland tomatoes in the world would come out of that sort of because they all flow and they're all tasteless. But you know, <laughs> well, that 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 is very interesting. I, I mean, that's going to be a very very big problem for us around the world: uh, growing food, providing food in an ordered way, managing 
resources from the sea as well, of course, and the fisheries and so forth. That's going to be very, very competitive, I suspect, and perhaps some very sad future stories if we don't manage that well. Are you optimistic about the way we could as humans provide food? I mean, you've just provided a little insight there into something that, you know, that I guess if you can grow tomatoes that way, you can grow lots of things that way, just about anything, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. look, you know, you look back to the Green Revolution um, and prior to the 70s, we, we had this notion that India was going to run out of food and have mass starvation. Yes. And after the Green Revolution in India, India was exporting grain to the rest of the world. Yes. Uh, so so yeah. 10 years prior, we had this view that we were going to have mass starvation in India. And then 10 years later, um, just simple, you know, dwarf varieties of, of rice and wheat yeah. came out. Um, the notion of using nitrogen fertilizers on agriculture, um, irrigation water uh, became more, more viable. So the, the Green Revolution really told us that, you know, big jumps forward are possible. The problem we face this time is we can't just put more water on. We can't put nitrogen on. That those those step changes have been taken up. So we've got to look for internal efficiencies in the system. So we can't put on one nitrogen because we've exceeded the global we've exceeded the global budget on nitrogen surplus. So we already put too much nitrogen on. But there's so can you explain can you explain that about the nitrogen surplus? I know Sri Lanka has just made a decision not to use nitrogen based fertilisers, which I think could be an issue there growing in the way they grow a product. I don't know whether that's more a financial one or not, but could you explain that statement you made about? Nitrogen? Yeah, so, so in, in nature, everything goes through diminishing returns. What we mean is you put on fertiliser or water yes. and you increase the rate at which you put on and you will get to a point where you've met the system's requirement. Right. Anything you put on beyond that is just lost. Okay. Because yeah. you, you've met the plant's requirement or the soil's requirement. Yeah. Yes. So nature works on this law of diminishing. You can't get more out of it effectively per square, whatever. Yeah. With nitrogen, we've gone right up to the global budget, and we've gone over the global budget because nitrogen was too cheap. The Haber-Bosch process allowed us to get low-cost nitrogen and just pour it on agriculture. Right. And so we're seeing exponential increases in losses to the environment to the point that the whole New Zealand dairy industry is in serious trouble because they just cannot get water catchment quality, water quality targets down to acceptable levels. There's just too many cows in New Zealand, all urinating nitrogen um, in catchments. They're pouring nitrogen fertilizer on, they're urinating nitrogen. So we, we've gone over the budget. There's a lot of internal efficiency to sort of be discovered by going back in how much we use and being more efficient and just meeting plant demand. Um, so, so there's a lot of internal efficiencies to be to be discovered or not rediscovered actually in agriculture. Not the least of which is half the world over apply nitrogen and leak into the environment, but half the African continent haven't even discovered nitrogen yet as a fertilizer. Mm. And so all that sort of tropical section of agriculture in Africa doesn't even use nitrogen in those subsistence systems. Yeah. Yeah. So we could ramp up sort of more biological supply of legumes in those areas, right. get more sort of non-fossil fuel nitrogen into the tropics of Africa, yeah. double food production quite easily if the political will was there. Is producing nitrogen fertilisers very expensive, Richard? Is, is there a, yes. an issue with that or a shortage of it coming, a looming? Well, if you think of 78% of the atmosphere is dinitrogen, um, so yeah. the Haber-Bosch process allowed us to capture that Yes. But the problem with Harbour Bosch is that it requires natural gas to superheat air. Yes. So it's quite an expensive process. Yeah. So, you know, you know what's happened to the natural gas prices shot through the roof. So, right. Right. because the fossil fuel price is connected to the nitrogen price, we've got a trebling of nitrogen fertilizer prices on our hands. Now, if you go to the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, you'll see we've now commissioned about eight projects in Australia to make nitrogen fertilizer using renewable energy. And so there's a, plant, a pilot plant in South Australia that's using that solar concentrated thermal idea of the sundrop farms right. to superheat air to replace the harbour wash process. Instead of using natural gas, which has a running cost to make nitrogen, we could use solar energy to make nitrogen and not have any embedded carbon, on, carbon uh, emissions plus no running cost in producing fertiliser. So that, that's really an important plank for the future is to say, can we produce nitrogen fertiliser that is disconnected from the fossil fuel industry. And that'll be a major breakthrough in the future. Well, that is very clever. Who's driving that, Richard? Is that, is that a government initiative or a private industry initiative? The, these are all these eight projects are all funded by the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, so that's taxpayer money through a government right. agency. Right. 
but they are funding private industries to innovate. Right, okay. And so we've got, you know, green hydrogen, so a lot of uh, the, the Twiggy Forest is, is made yeah. a lot of commitments in green hydrogen. Yes. Um, and if that can come off and we can get commercial-scale green hydrogen, we can use that to make fertilisers. Yes. Um, would that have no embedded fossil fuel energy in them? Right. Um, that's a bit more f- out in the future. So green hydrogen is still yet to be proven to scale to technology to, to the industrial scale. We can do it in the laboratory, but I'm not sure we can scale it quite like uh, Fortescue sort of would like to do. But solar energy is, is proven, and we can do that um, tomorrow. So it is possible just to use the Sundrop Farms concept of um, you know, 1,100 degrees at the top of a solar-concentrated tower to drive the Haber-Bosch process, which will generate industrial-scale ammonia. That's made me feel a bit more optimistic about the future, actually, talking with you about that. I wasn't aware of those projects. Uh, so thank you for, for uh, bringing that to our attention. What about water? There's food. What about water? We've got issues with water, and I wasn't aware that New Zealand had those problems. Uh, th- there are problems with uh, you know flooding, contaminating water around the world. We seem to have... Uh, water basins being at the moment being troubled by that, uh, which is perhaps a climate change uh, meteorological disturbance. Can you tell us a little about water? So it's such an important thing for human health. What, what's your thought about that? Water, um, New Zealand's problem with water is agricultural contamination. So if you think about, you know, why is the Australian dairy industry not in the same problem as the New Zealand dairy industry? There aren't any catchments in Australia that are 100% dairy. We've always got diverse land use in the catchment, lifestyle is a bit of forestry. And effectively what that does is dilutes the loading of nitrogen from dairy. In New Zealand, the Canterbury Plains, sandy soil, wall-to-wall dairy, no diverse land use in the catchment. So it's not surprising the rivers coming out of the Taranaki, the Waikato, the Canterbury Plains are all loaded with nitrate well beyond acceptable stream limits. And then you, you realise that although dairy is important to New Zealand, actually tourism revenue to fly fishing in New Zealand is actually one zero bigger than the dairy industry's revenue to New Zealand. So guess what's going to happen? Dairy is going to have to take a step back and clean up its act because tourism is more important. Mm. Um, and so New Zealand's got that problem. Australia's got kind of the reverse problem in that it's drying out in the centre. So we're getting less and less water and you know a 10% reduction in rainfall actually translates to about an 80% reduction in stream flow. Mm. So the problem we have is stream flow is actually declining quite substantially, which means you don't get as, like the Menindee Lakes issue in Australia is just drying off the, of the rivers flowing through the Menindee Lakes, which don't clean out salinity and phosphorus contamination like they used to. And so we have dying of fish in the Menindee Lakes because we don't get the flushing. And this is one of the ironies of the current flood crisis we've got. Is we talk about the human impact of flood, but we don't talk about the benefit that we'll get from flushing out the mouth of the Murray River that's become completely dead yes. because of salinity. Yes. Well, there, there is a the silver lining, if you can call it, that we'll finally get the flushing of the mouth of the Murray yeah. with cleaner water and revive the ecosystem health of the mouth of the Murray. Um, floods are actually an integral part. Same as fire. Fire is an integral part of the Australian landscape. Yes, We need fire to, for a lot of eucalypts and grasses to germinate. We need floods to flush out the system because a flat continent like Australia gets salinity building up in all our river systems and it relies on the irregular flushing of floods going through to clean them up. Dorothy McKellar's uh, poem, isn't it? It's sort of like uh, you know, uh, a land of floods and drought and so forth. It, it, it goes back over a long, long period of time. The Aboriginals probably... Um, Exploited that that you know intuitively exploited that knowledge with with the fires. What about around the world? How's the sort of the situation with the provision of water around more crowded places in the world, like in China and Africa is going to be very crowded, India, so forth. Any comments there about what we can expect? It, it, it's going to be a big issue in the big population centres. So so India, China have got different problems. Um, China. Um, if you, if, you, if you go back a couple of years to a National Geographic article, it actually went through all the rivers of China and what their health was. Yes. They're basically all dead from pollution. Right. You cannot drink water from any river in China without getting toxic chemicals in you. 
um, other than if you go right up to the Himalayas and you drink out of you know some of the Tibetan waters, it's probably the only clean water left. This is industrial so, industrial sort of wash off. Because of industrial pollution. Um, three Gorges uh, probably haven't helped the Three Gorges project. Well, the Three Gorges the dam point. is actually under structural integrity problems because of the loading of plastic sitting behind it that they can't. They never designed the wall to hold the land the plastic that sits behind it. Right. And so that's that's a massive issue for them. You know, you, you design it for the water load, not the plastic load on top of the water load. Um, so that's an issue for China, and that's a serious issue. Um, if you go to India, the, the situation is quite different. Um, the Indian government provided uh, subsidies for groundwater pumps in the Indo-Gangetic Plain. Th that was a great idea. It got a lot of the Green Revolution going, but they never put limits on how much you could extract. And so now you've got subsidies to extract water, but the groundwater is now dropping at an alarming rate, which means that we've created a system where people are dependent on the food as a result of the subsidy for irrigation pumps. But we'll get to a crash point where suddenly we can't pump water because the water table's too low and it's not being regenerated. So India's got that crisis point coming. If you look at other parts of the world, you know, in Central Africa, water is abundant. Um, the monsoonal areas of the world are actually building in rainfall, so not not the end of the world. Flooding is going to be the problem there, not not running out of water in Central Africa. But as you go more towards the Mediterranean regions or the temperate regions of the world, generally they're drying out. So if you go to the Mediterranean, generally Mediterranean is drying out. Um, it's getting less and less growing season rainfall. We see California right down to Chile, we know the droughts in California at the moment. That's just a step change in climate. They they are just running out of growing season rainfall in all Mediterranean regions. Yeah. Western Australia, Mediterranean region, Cape Town ran out of water. Western Australia went through a step change in the 1970s, dropped 170 millimetres. Victoria, since the millennium drought, hasn't recovered. Um, Victoria, on average, has lost about 100 millimetres of rainfall since the year 2000. Um, it doesn't seem like it with no. own learning events. Yes. But if you map it out and you take out the known La Nina events, mm. we've dropped 100 millimetres. Mm. That's very uh, significant. Mm. And, and, and that's pretty well understood that, you know, as you put more heat into the Hadley cell, which is the cell that goes between the equator and the tropics, that's a cell that turns around a, a weather current. Yes. And imagine you put more heat into that and it just expands further towards the poles. Yes. And so that's what's happening. Cold fronts come to try and hit Cape Town and Victoria. And there's more pressure sitting over the continent than there used to be. So the cold fronts can't come as far into Australia as they used to, or can't hit Cape Town. So the average eye of the average cold front is now 400 kilometres further south than it was 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And that's just because you can imagine, you put more heat into the Hadley cell. It's the same reason why we get summer rain in northern Australia and winter rain in the south. Winter rain is because it's colder over the continent, the cold fronts can come further into the continent. Mm. In summer, that heat is higher and the cold fronts can't come as far into the continent. Put more temperature in for longer and the cold fronts for more months of the year can't come into the continent. They've got to go further south. So the irony is Macquarie Island is actually getting rain. When they used to get the, the, the mist on the back of the cold front, they're now getting the full front of the cold front. Um, Tasmania is getting more rain, not less. Yes. Uh, because the cold fronts are actually hitting Tasmania full on, whereas previously Victoria would get the full cold fronts. The hydro producers are like that. That'd be one good thing, I guess. Yeah, we could get more hydro out of Tasmania. <laughs> <laughs> that, well, that's really fascinating discussing that that with you. Um, gosh, you've got some great insights here, Richard. Um, but what, what about like what, what do you foresee in terms of uh, you know disease processes that we're going to have to tackle? Uh, you know, I mean, there's, there's lots of obvious things, I guess, aren't there, from you know, having too much water in some places and not, not enough water in other places. There are going to be those heat stroke or mosquitoes or waterborne diseases and so forth. Just take us through your thoughts on that. What, what can we expect? Yeah, we, we've already seen some diseases like Blue Nile um, fever sort of cross the Mediterranean from Africa. So that's a, that's a nasal catarrhal fever in, in, in sheep. Um, so, so we've seen that cross into Europe and more incidents of, of blue, blue, blue tongue um, occurring in Europe. Um, that's a very clear climate change effect. Mm. Um, but you've got to be careful with generalizations because um, the fact that Victoria is getting warmer doesn't mean to say that mosquitoes from northern Australia can suddenly predominate in Victoria because it doesn't mean that it'll be raining in summer in Victoria. So some of these mosquito-borne diseases need summer rain, and it's just warmer in Victoria, not raining in summer. It's still a winter rainfall climate. 
So that's a natural barrier we've got to keep in mind that it's not just temperature that allows um, diseases to move more towards the poles or to the temperate regions. Um, so some tropical diseases that require humidity or, or rainfall, like mosquito breeding, just won't move south until the rainfall moves south. Mm-hmm. We have seen Rift Valley fever and a couple of Q fever sort of move south. That that's That's known. Um, it's more out towards the coast because if you look at what's happened, we uh, places like Holbrook, uh, Wagga, Yass, 40 years ago would get mainly winter rainfall. Now those places get 50% of their rain in summer and 50% in winter. So they do get the summer rain for mosquito-borne diseases to move in. But once you come into sort of Rutherglen and further south in Victoria or the Wimmera Mallee, you're not getting that summer rain. So those mosquito-borne diseases can't come further south because, well, they can't breed in those conditions. Um, so, so some of the some of the fungal diseases we 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 do see moving south when the conditions are right. Like the Barossa gets devastated now with fungal diseases if we have a La Nina, like we're having now. You know, they they spraying with fungicides all the time at the moment. Mm. Whereas in a normal winter, uh, a summer rainfall period. Uh, there would be zero rain there, so zero humidity and no fungal diseases. Um, so it's not just one size fits all that climate change will mean more diseases further north and south. Some will if they're not dependent on rainfall, if they're just temperature dependent. But if they are rainfall dependent, it's not automatic. We've got a lot of challenges ahead, haven't we? A lot of challenges. I think the United Nations have said that there's about a 50% chance that temperatures will rise above 1.5 degrees in the next nine years. Uh, can you explain, is, why is that so critical, that temperature change? I understand that there's been, since records have been kept, the Earth's temperature has been increasing by about 0.08 degrees every 10 years. But, so what, why is it such an, what, why is 1.5 such, like such an important figure? Yeah, so, so I, I tend to put it in these terms. Um, think about the worst El Nino that Australia's ever had in the recent memory, and that was one degree above industrial. So now we're going another 50% on that. that. That's how I think about it, because um, in, a, in an El Nino year, like the La Nina, we tend to not rise as much in temperature because there's so much rain around at the moment. Right, right. But in El Nino, we tend to be a hotter continent because the temperature comes further south, the interior of Australia, that dry heat comes further south, and isn't buffered by rainfall. Mm. So we can rise as much as 1 degree, 1.1 degree above in pre-industrial in a El Nino year. So, so that gives us a window into what agriculture might look like at one degree is the worst El Nino we've had recently, and it devastated crop production. We had dairy cattle dying en masse that we just didn't hear about it. But, you know, mm. I can point you to Shoalhaven that lost 180 dairy cows in a day in the January 2014 heatwave event. Another 50 cows died at Mafra because they, the irrigation, the water, the reticulated water wasn't working. One day, you think about a dairy cow. Produces 50 litres of milk a day. Yes. That's 50 litres of water. Yes. Huge. If it doesn't go in, it doesn't come out. Yes. (laughs) Or it does come out, they preferentially take it out of body tissue. Um, And so it's one day of 45 degrees with no water in a paddock for dairy cows, they did. They're highly vulnerable. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, our crop production, um, push it up a degree. Um, So the most accurate indicator we've got in agriculture of, of, of that effect is the viticulture industry. So you think of viticulture every day leading up to harvest, that winemaker goes out and tests the BRICS content concentration of the wine. So that's the sugar concentration. And when they get to 23.7, they know they can make a quality Pinot Noir. Um, so what, what we managed to do in one of our studies was go out to all the dairy, all the, all the, the winemakers that do Pinot Noir across southern Australia and collect their field notes. And what we noticed is that there's a gradual shift of eight days per decade moving towards the summer of that ideal sugar concentration. So you, there's, there's nothing you can say that gets away from that. That is straight increased earlier bud burst in spring. Yes. So higher spring temperatures earlier on has led to earlier bud burst that flows through to the grapes ripening earlier. Um, so that's the, the, you know, and, and, and the problem we've got is, is, is that's driving the same effect in our grasses, is so driving the same effect in um in horticulture, in stone fruit, poem fruit, it's driving, um, I don't know if you know, but most almonds, poem fruit, stone fruit require a certain number of chilling hours in winter before the plant gets the signal to go reproductive. Yes, I have read that. Yeah. So if that I mean, chilling hours, 
And so there's certain valleys in the Goulburn, Goulburn Valley that no longer get the chilling requirements, and so you get no fruit. Yes, okay. The and that's what's affected by that. Yeah. Because they know they can get that down in Hobart now. Yeah. It's, well, that's another huge challenge, isn't it? We might see crops being grown in different states as a consequence of that. Um, yeah, I drew a map of Victoria, what Victoria would look under 1.5 degrees, because we've done all the research and no one put it together and said, this is what it looks like. And and they're winners and losers. It, it's it's not all bad news, um, because you can think of the Wimmera Mallee where we produce wheat. Um, when they bought their farms 40 years ago, 50 years ago, they would get eight successful crops in 10. The average is now three or four, and the bank doesn't tolerate three or four successful crops in 10. So we see mixed farming move back up because in a in a year like the one we have now where all the canola is ruined by rainfall, you can put the sheep in and still produce a, wheat, a, a, a wool crop. So you get this sort of diversification that buffers those systems. But what we're seeing further south in Hamilton, for example, is it's more viable now for canola because it's drier. Yeah. So you can actually plough and get canola into what traditionally was just grazing land. Yeah. Um, and so we're seeing these, these dynamic changes take place. We've seen cotton move south gradually into Victoria, and cotton can pay five times what dairy can for water. So guess what happens yes. to the inland dairy industry? They've got to change very rapidly. Mm. Um, but is that a bad thing? Well, you know, cotton's as valuable as dairy. So That's right. The Cubby Station draws a lot of water, doesn't it? I thought you were going to say we're going to have camels everywhere. That's going to be uh, a big <laughs> we, we have camels everywhere already. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Um, there are, you know, I, I want to go on to a little something else, but I, there, there are, you know, we briefly talked about this before we started recording, some climate deniers around. It seems to me the science is extremely clear on climate change, and you've just pointed out some examples in the field that people have been measuring temperatures that geologists often seem to point to, well, you know, this has happened before and we've had ice ages and there's been these temperature changes and but I think I'm right in saying it's the speed of which the changes have been brought about that we have to be very, very cognizant of. It's the speed of change. Yes, humans humans are overpopulating, we're using resources, we're polluting, but there's also it's the speed of change that we're inducing on the climate that's the big thing. Could you, could you make a comment about that? Like uh, the climate yeah. deniers are not, they're all intelligent people, but they've got, a, they've got this wrong, I think. Would you agree? I would agree. Um, I wrote this article the uh, you know a couple of years back that plants and animals don't lie. Um, yeah, and that's the example I gave you of viticulture. We 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 actually do yeah. see examples in the plant and animal kingdom where they they can't lie to themselves because of political persuasion. Yes, um, they they just respond to the environment they're in, and the wine winemakers are actually reading the results and the fact that. Uh, European wasps are not dying out over winter like they used to 20 years ago. We're getting we're getting that effect coming through. So there's also evidence in the natural world that who cares what the driver is? The dri- we're warming up, and that's going to affect food production. Yes. Um, and you know, at the moment, we 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 know that CO2 levels have gone up, and you know, all the modelling would say that's what's driving it. I, I would say um, where the difference comes in is you, you're exactly right. It's the speed at which it happens. So a lot of the questions we're asking in science is, does nature have the genetic diversity to allow natural adaptation in the mm. timescale we have available? And the answer is no. Mm. Because we have we have grasses like kangaroo grass that grow in Hobart and in the Kimberley. So you'd say, well, the genetic diversity has to be there to cope. But a lot of our introduced crops like wheat just simply don't have the genetic diversity to respond yeah. through natural selection in the time we have available. Yeah. Um, whereas in geological time, when we took a million years to go from one degree to two degrees warmer, um, or the, the changes we experience in geological time, yeah, a million years is plenty of time for that genetic diversity to yeah. express itself and natural adaptation to take place. Yeah, It's just, you're exactly right, it's the pace that we have at the moment. Yes. So what you will find, what we find, ironically, is those involved in the biology of the world understand the pace of change because we can see it we measure it all the time those in geology are looking at the worth in 16.4 billion year timescales and saying oh we've been here before we've lived through it before but they're not connected to the current biology we're seeing which is saying it's changing so rapidly we can't cope with the change 
Yes, I think Tim Flannery sort of makes that point too and points to extinction yeah. as a whole, the speed of change. Now, look, thank you very much for bringing that to our attention. So we've got this very big move at the moment to get away from fossil fuels because they're CO2 producing. Um, that, that could lead, and we're, we're seeing a, a different a political problem that we have in, in Europe, of course, in the Ukraine with power shortages, let's say into the future, we may struggle. I don't think any country at the moment has managed has it to provide renewable, like 100% renewable power. I don't think the Danes or anyone has actually done that so far. I'd be interested to see what you think about, like how possible do you think that is? I know that's a little bit away from what we're talking about, but it feeds into the next question, which will be also that if we don't have enough power, we're going to have problems with, of course, people dying from cold in those more extreme and also heat stroke and so forth. Do you have, can you enlighten me a little bit about that? Where do you think we're going to go? We've got lots of bright people and you've, you've just informed me about what's going on in South Australia. I didn't have, uh, I didn't know uh, about a lot of those innovations. Where do you think we're headed? Do you think it's possible? What do you perceive as being our future there in terms of, you know, low CO2 producing power sources? We, we worked on the net, net Zero Australia plan, and I think that became one of the big challenges is how do the, what we call wedges, what are the wedges that we're going to have to uh, insert into the future to displace fossil fuels as the energy? What's yeah. the mix made up of? Mm. There's no doubt that natural gas has always been our transition fuel. So mm. how, do we, how do we clean up coal? Well, one step is to say, let's take dirty coal out and put natural gas in because it's, it's substantially cleaner, but it still produces greenhouse emissions. I think the war in Ukraine has sort of brought home that we can't go completely renewable just yet, mm. uh, that we need actual natural gas. I mean, Europe is just desperate for natural gas for yeah. at yeah. the moment. So, so, you know, the Australian gas companies are cashing in big time on, on the uh, increased gas price. So even, even the sort of listening to some of the Green Senators this morning about the Australian government commissioning $32 million towards a fossil fuel exploration company yeah. to deliver natural gas, that's going to be vital for a transition fuel because yeah. it'll see us through a base price on natural gas into the future, which buys us time. Yes. But there's no way we can go completely without fossil fuels of any sort because uh, it's, just, it's just a numbers game, really. Um, you, you would have to say that by 2050 as a, as, a, as a population on the world, if we haven't found the technology to get ourselves out of the dependence on fossil fuels, we're in serious trouble. Um, and so there, there are rapidly emerging technologies around this. You know, every now and again in research, you get to sit in a room and you get stuff that the general population don't get to hear. You know, I sat in the room the other day with a group of engineers who said, here's a battery, same as a Duracell battery. We can store 10 times the energy of a Duracell in this battery, and we're about to patent it. Now, you know, that's the kind of leap that we actually are in at the moment where you think of 10 times the energy stored in a little simple battery. Um, that means that it actually, if you think about the big flaw in renewable energy, we build all these wind turbines, we build all these uh, solar batteries, so solar energy, but we didn't build the capacity to store all that energy. We assumed that we could just pump it into wires and wires would somehow magically store it. Mm. But the grid is not a battery. The grid is just a grid. And we, we, what we should have done right from the beginning is incentivized if you're going to build a wind turbine, have somewhere to store the energy because then we can use it in a measured way. Mm. So that's why the next big breakthrough has to be high-capacity battery storage so then we can greatly increase the, the solar wave power, um, uh, pumped hydro, all those technologies, have a place to store the energy that we can use it in a measured way. And then you can get rid of your coal-fired or gas-fired power systems. Mm. Um, but until we can store it, at the moment, the most the most sort of efficient way of storing all that energy is pumping water uphill, like the Snow Mountains game. Yeah, that's sort of like a potential battery. Yeah, or, yes. or the the scheme they're proposing for Wyala, for example, which is pumped seawater. So you pump seawater up from Wyala up to the hill behind one of the driest regions in Australia, where you can actually have a salt lake and you can bring it down when you need it. South Australia needs that solution because they've gone to so much wind and solar. Mm. That South Australia can be completely on renewable energy if they had a way to store it. Mm. And the best way to store it is pump water uphill and bring it down when you need it. Yeah, that's like necessity, sort of like the, it's the, mm. it, it's the um, stimulus for inventions, isn't it? Um, so 
Yeah. So you're reasonably optimistic about that. Do you have any thoughts about, like, I'm interested in your ideas about, you know, where we are with nuclear. Uh, I'm not sure whether that's a bit off topic here, but is that something that you're in favour of? Or have you got, is it too politically hot, hot a subject to us, for us to... Yeah, to look, nuclear is a very controversial one in that nobody wants the waste in their backyard. Yes. Um, that's actually the big problem. Um, no matter where you go, you'd think somewhere in Australia you could find a spot to dump nuclear, and no, you can't. Because no matter where you go, someone sees it's in my backyard. Um, <laughs> and, and that becomes the, the eternal question, you know. You, yes. You've got to store the stuff for a thousand years. Mm. And we don't have materials in which to store it for a thousand years. A lot of the nuclear waste dumps were put in 44-gallon drums yes. and stuck deep underground. Well, they're all rusted now. Yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, it's all leaking out underground and we don't know where it goes. It's a bit like the fracking industry, you know. You drill a hole dynamite down below a big chamber underneath hope you connect all the fissures in the rock and hope nothing leaks out somewhere downstream where you didn't plan yes. it's kind of a very inact science uh, inaccurate science um same, same as storing what a nuclear waste underground you have no idea where it'll go in 100 years yeah. time yeah how about leaking to subterranean water catchments and so forth yeah it's it's, yeah. it's it is a big concern despite it being an efficient way of producing energy yeah uh, well, that's very interesting. Uh, what else should we discuss here in relation to uh, health and the health impacts? Uh, we, you've given us some, you know, some optimism. Uh, you know, I'm very excited actually about some of these innovations you've discussed. And uh, you know, of course, nature is going to, as you say, drive crop development further south or north or whatever, depending on the climate. So we might better get food production in a different way than we are currently. What, 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 yeah. What else should we be thinking about? I think human heat stress is and human and animal heat stress is a big issue. Um, a very big issue, um, you know, uh, but, but there's, there's also cause for some sort of synergies, optimas around synergies here, because we talk about planting trees to sequester carbon and draw yes. down the atmosphere. I think we're going to have to see much more tree planting in the future, like yes. 10% of all agricultural land going under trees, because the simple fact that that tree behind me on a 30-degree day inside that canopy is only 28 degrees because of the matter of cooling. Yes, yes. So Nigel Tapper from Monash Uni did this study where he showed we could take two degrees out of the city of Melbourne just by going to more green and urban design. So having open water bodies and, um, and more trees in the landscape. So even in the Northern Territory where it's 40 degrees outside, if you go under a eucalypt canopy where you get 100% shade, inside that canopy is still only 28 degrees. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, artificial, uh, artificial shade just never achieves that same shade cloth. You, you might get a relief from the incident radiation, but you don't get the radiative heat, the heat load underneath shade cloth is still there. So artificial shade never achieves what natural shade will. So a simple solution for the future is sequester more carbon, put in substantially more trees. And in agriculture, trees might not pay for carbon, but a small amount of lamb survival from reducing heat stress pays for trees hands down. Yes. Um, small amount of wind chill survival in the middle of winter from planting trees on the western boundary of a farm in Hamilton will more than pay for trees. And so we, we, we're in this transition where we can see actually there's a need for carbon in the landscape, there's a need for biodiversity in the landscape. Farmers occupy the majority or manage the majority of the economy's biodiversity. What if 20% of all agricultural land was under trees? You know, those, those kind of things, we've got to be thinking about how the public get involved in supporting farmers to transition to that future. We need to get into the era of Twiggy Forest and uh, is it Mike Cannon-Brooks to, yeah. to start pushing more tree planting. I haven't heard that discussed very much, actually, tree planting. It always seems to be an obvious one because they're sequestering CO2, but, you know, and I didn't really consider the shade issue that you've discussed. So yeah, The CO2 yeah. issue doesn't pay for the loss of agricultural land. Yeah. Um, so you can't get enough carbon credits to justify a small amount of, you know, take 10% out of a dairy farm, you will never pay for the carbon in those trees in carbon credits yeah. for the, against the loss of milk production. Yes. But if you listen to a farmer from South Gippsland who says on those cold, westerly, windy days, if I put the cows in the tree, tree paddock, I save six litres in the dairy that day per cow. Yes. That, that more than pays for the trees. So, so, you know, we've got to think of the co-benefits of trees. Then, then I suspect that we, we're rapidly in this transition from carbon credit language, by 2030, we're talking biodiversity because that's actually what matters to the, the, yeah. the, the continent. 
Mm. So we'll transition out of saying it's the carbon credits we want to saying we want more biodiversity in the Australian landscape. And oh, carbon is a co-benefit that sits underneath that. And we're happy with that. So we want to reward farmers for managing the biodiversity on behalf of the Australian population because it makes it a more pleasant continent to live in as a result. That's where we'll end up. Which is that conversation happening in political circles? Uh, What you're saying makes incredible sense. It has started. Um, Groups like the Australian Farm Institute are actively working on how do we transition out of carbon credit language into biodiversity language because that's really what matters to people. Yeah. Um, Soils are better when they've got more microbes in them. That's biodiversity. Yeah. Wheat on wheat on wheat is highly vulnerable, so you actually need to go into rotations, which is biodiversity. Trees in the landscape is biodiversity. Um, You know, so so it's not just one definition, but we do have the first biodiversity pilots carbon biodiversity credit scheme out of the federal government now available. It is focused on trees only, but it's a pilot scheme. So we started putting our toe in the water to say, if we look at the environmental services agriculture or the land sector provide. Carbon credits was just one little slice that disappears by 2030 because everybody has to do it. Biodiversity is the next big one. Water use efficiency is the next big one. Um, And so that's the transition we're in out of talking carbon language because that becomes the obvious through to biodiversity, which is actually what we all really want. Richard, I think we can be very proud that you've made the transition from Africa to Australia to bring this a very intelligent uh, conversation and debate to us. You know, and and such instructive ideas. That it's just it's tremendous speaking to you. You know, I was, when I was listening to you there, I thought, God, there's got to be some kind of you know new future for medical people who are studying climate change and looking at this and making contributions to political debate as well. I don't think there is a. a, a currently that kind of subject available, but it would be tremendous if it was. And, you know, I, I really do appreciate the time that you spent discussing this with me. It, it's been really nice. And, you know, I hope we can sit back and have a glass of wine. <laughs> a Pinot Noir. And chat more at some time. Oh, you've got one there. Okay. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for making the time. Really appreciate it. Richard. No, absolutely. Pleasure. I'd like to thank you for joining me in the conversation with Professor Richard Eckhart. I really enjoyed that discussion with Richard. And if you have any further questions you'd like to put to him, you're most welcome to write to me and I can entice him back for another conversation. During the podcast series, we will be covering a wide range of topics across many specialty interests. The discussions are not intended as specific medical advice for patients, but as general information only and reflect the opinions of the guests interviewed. Requests for new topics to be reviewed and comments about the conversation you've listened to are welcomed and may be emailed to manager at geohealth.com.au. Thank you.